Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a second of your time, possibly like 30 seconds. Then uh, when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, enter other people. All one word. And spell out people. O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. And when you do that... You're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of this program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content as well, always available on demand without syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go get it. Get it at the App Store. Get it at Stitcher.com. Available for your iPhone, your Android, your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me in a rectangular room. This is you with a circular cranium. How are you? What's going on? My name is Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. I am here in Los Angeles. Lovely Los Angeles, California. My guest today is Lee Klein. Uh, many of you out there who came of age in the age of internet literature are probably aware of him. Uh, he's the editor of the early on, uh, early online lit journal called iShot, and he now has two books of his own, uh, one of which is called Thanks and Sorry and Good Luck. It's available now from Barrel House, and uh, it is a collection of Lee's uh, often extremely funny and always insightful rejection letters from his editorial desk at iShot. And then uh, later this year, he will be publishing a novel called The Shimmering Go-Between, which is due out from Atticus Books in August 2014. So be on the lookout. Uh, I want to quickly let you know that listenership numbers uh, for the program have exploded 
over the past week, alleviating uh, my uh, anxiety from a couple of shows ago, <laughs> a couple of episodes back, you know, and I, I have no idea what's causing it. And, and, and who knows what it is. It's, it's hard to know what all of this stuff means. These digital analytics. I mean, for the most part for this show, it's been a steady trajectory, consistent upward tick. And then, uh, you know, there's fluctuations uh, and then there are the uh, ensuing palpitations. And then, you know, you don't, you don't know if it's real up or down, but uh, I'd rather have it. Uh, I'd rather have the big surge. And I'm wondering, uh, like, did something happen? Did something, did someone say something online that sent a bunch of traffic over? Uh, did a celebrity plug my podcast? <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if I have any celebrity listeners. If you're a celebrity and you listen to the show, uh, can you email me to let me know? The address is letters at other com, or, uh, or just uh, have, uh, have your representation contact me. Send a black car. <laughs> with your publicist inside and perhaps like a fruit basket or something or some C's candies. Uh, speaking of C's candies, uh, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Those boxes of, uh, chocolates, C's candies, S E E. Uh, my mother gives a, gives us these on a semi-regular basis. And what I've found is that I'm like a crack addict when I have a box of chocolates in, in the house which I guess isn't that abnormal, but like I, you know, I'm not a hugely addictive personality and uh, I tend to be fairly controlled in my consumptions. But I mean, my wife came into the kitchen the other day and uh, I was just standing there like wolfing, (laughs) wolfing down chocolate. And there's all those little wrappers everywhere, which makes it like doubly humiliating. And so Carrie was like, uh, like, dude, you're eating like a bulimic teen. What is your problem? And I was like, I don't, I was like, I don't know. Or I was like, I don't know. (laughs) It's like stuffing my face in a zombie trance. So there's that. And then, uh, my three-year-old, uh, daughter is now officially aware of death. That's another development. And uh, I tweeted about this uh, last night, actually. It's been intense around here. She's beginning to uh, become aware of mortality, which uh, as a parent, it's heartbreaking. You know, it's inevitable, but it's still, it just tugs at you because the innocence uh, is starting to fracture. Irretrievably. And uh, like her friends at school, her little girlfriends at school, at her uh, little day school have apparently been playing the dying game where they pretend to die. (laughs) This is age three for those of you who don't have kids or don't have context. And, uh, my daughter, Evan, uh, she doesn't like this. She tells us this when she comes home, she's like, I don't want to play the dying game. And we're like, well, you can uh, play other games. Ask your friends to play tag (laughs) something duck, duck goose. So it's tough, you know, like, what do you tell a child? And, uh, you know, increasingly my general approach is just to not lie about anything. And and maybe I'm extreme in this uh, position, but even with something as innocent 
as like Santa Claus. I'm already telling her it's just a guy in a suit. <laughs> I can't help it. Can't do that stuff. And it's it's very important to me. I want her to know that her father, and my wife feels the same way. I think we want her to know that we're not full of shit. Feels weird to lie to your kid. Or it feels weird to me. I mean, you know, we might not know all the answers, but uh, we'll tell, you know, we tell the truth. I want her to be able to trust me. If I don't know the answer, then I just tell her I don't know the answer. That's the truth. Am I depriving her of like magical childhood experiences? I don't know. Doing the best I can. I'm operating by instinct. This is what my uh, instinct is telling me to do. Like, why, why prank your kid with this uh, fucking holiday bullshit? <laughs> Just tell her what's happening. Life is confusing enough. And, and frankly, life is magical enough without, uh, you know, some red-nosed reindeer. So let me read you all, just to give you like a little deeper understanding of what I'm talking about. Let me read you these tweets from uh, last night, and then we'll get going with the show. This uh, actually happened in my household. Last night, my wife read my daughter a story before bed. The story was about astronauts, and my daughter asked about the spacesuit and what would happen if the astronaut lost his helmet in space. My wife, trying to be honest, said something like, Well, the astronaut would die, sweetie. And my daughter said, Then what? And my wife said something like, Well, um, then the astronaut turns into a star. At which point my daughter started bawling, saying, Mommy, I don't want to die. I really don't want to die. I don't want to die, Mommy. She was inconsolable. She said... If I turn into a star, will you come find me? Will you chip away and chip away at the star until you find me? And then my wife started crying, or almost crying. And she was searching for words and struggling to stifle her tears. And it was at this precise moment that I walked into the room completely unaware of the situation or what had just transpired and said with far too much enthusiasm... Who's ready for a bedtime story? Okay, so there you have it. That's it. That's what we're up against right now in my household. You know? What do you say to that? <laughs> Just trying to, you try to do your best. It, gets, it kind of rattles you because you, you want to get it right. You don't want to confuse the issue or, you know, screw your kid up. I don't believe there's any such thing as death. That's what I honestly believe. I think it's an illusion. I think our perspective is limited. That's what I try to tell her. I tell her we just continue. We are uh, like a cloud that turns into rain. We are composites. We're made up of uh, different parts. Those parts disperse. Everything is one. But of course... Uh, if uh, everything in the universe is uh, one, then the one is totally alone. And this is disconcerting. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today, once again, is Lee Klein. You can get his new book, Thanks and Sorry and Good Luck, right now from Barrel House. And then later this summer, in August, you can get his novel. It's called The Shimmering Go-Between. So uh, this is it. This is my conversation with Mr. Lee Klein. Um, no, I grew up like 45 minutes northeast around Princeton, New Jersey. And I was a Philly sports fan, but my parents are from Newark. Newark, New Jersey, as, they, as some people would say it. So we always went to New York City, and I was born in New York City. But um, I just wound up here after moving around a lot. Um, you happy there? Um, that's a you know, that's a great question. You're just talking in one of your monologues I was listening to a few days ago about you know everybody's like happiness is at an all time high in the world or something. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I, don't know, I mean, happiness is. Um, yes, sure, I'm happy, you know, but I think like it, it, it undulates definitely, you know, and there, there are times, Philly is a, a real city, you know, you can't just be like super happy here, or maybe it's like your temperament, you know, or my temperament, I'm probably not going to be super happy wherever, you know, but I've definitely had moments of happiness, like riding a bike at night down the middle of the street here is pretty good. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. You like to, but you like to city bike, like, are you out there in the middle of it? I'm not like a fixed gear city biker. I'm a sh- old Schwinn single speed that I bought for like 120 bucks, and I, use, I ride it to work. That's cool. I just rode it back from work just now, pretty fast. And you know, there aren't the streets are. It's just a grid. It's all flat here, like a, a grid between two rivers in Philadelphia. It's all flat. There isn't much traffic except during rush hour, so you can pretty much fly down the middle of the streets. And there are a lot of bike lanes and stuff like that. So it really makes certain neighborhoods easy to get to. Yeah, well, that's cool. That's cool because, like, I remember I was in New York uh, last winter and caught, like, a weird pocket of good weather, and I took one of those city bikes out, and that's what I noticed was that it's so flat. You can cruise around. You don't need gears. It's actually kind of a nice city to bike around except for the crazy traffic. 
in New York City. Right? I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah. I was just I was there on Monday. I was walking around and people going by on the city bikes. You know, and that, that those blue bikes that are branded with C I T I. Yeah, and there's just some. That's what I was riding. I just, you know, you just have to kind of check your ego at the door. It's a little, <laughs> right. it's a little and then, you know, you feel sort of shitty. It's like, of course, it's like a bank. You're just riding around like a, you're a moving bank billboard. But um, I think it's a good thing to have city bikes and to try to get people on the bikes and get cars off the road. I like that. But I kind of like the thing, you know, like the old New York sense. I'm like a romantic in that way that like I want to, you know, if you try to, if you step out into an intersection, it's okay for a cop to, or for a car to come by and hit you. You know, that kind of thing. Like, <laughs> I want like more, I mean, I was walking, I guess like a year or two ago, I was walking um, up the Bowery and I overheard people come by and said like, oh man, they need another crack epidemic to come through here. <laughs> you know, just like kind of want the city to, you know, return to that romantic 80s, um, you know, place where we used to, you know, come into the city and, you know, some people like roll up their windows, you know, the squeegee men and all that. But I don't know, or at least that way I could afford to live there. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You know, I feel like for artists like the early 80s in New York City, it seems like the last golden age because shit was actually happening downtown and you didn't have to be rich to live there or, or, or like willing to live like so hand to mouth just to pay your rent, you know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I lived there from 2000 to 2004 in Brooklyn. So, um, you know, I'm aware and a lot of my friends still live there and are able to live there and, you know. I mean, the whole idea that, that it's too expensive to live there isn't really true, you know, because um, there, there are places to live. Oh, you mean on, on the island of Manhattan or just like in the surrounding boroughs? Well, in Brooklyn too, you know. Well, yeah, so, but it's getting, you know, it's, all I hear is that it's getting pricey, but people can't live on the island as much as they used to, at least people in the arts. Yeah, I know very few who do, or the ones I do have, you know, have a good job plus a trust fund. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, okay, and so that's, I think that's why I was driving at Philly because I've always... You know, you feel, Philly feels like it's characterized or it has some sort of identity as like, you know, the the little brother of New York or, you know, it, it's like, um, I don't know. It just has kind of like a, a complex about that. Like, do you sense that when you're there? <laughs> you sense a complex in Philadelphia. If you've seen a Rocky movie, you're aware of it. Yeah, yeah but it's so, like because New, yeah. New York is the big beast. It's Gotham yeah. and then so, Philly's down the road and it's smaller and, you know, the sports teams aren't as decorated and whatnot. Yeah, it's a pop, like New York City is Apollo Creed. Yes. You know? <laughs> and Rocky is running the streets. And you're like, I mean, that is really the salt of the earth kind of Philly thing against the, the flashy New York, you know? I mean, and for all that, like, that's not necessarily who I am, you know? So that's why I have, like, a little bit of a, an issue with that. Sometimes you you feel like to really, really be part of the city here, you have to be kind of degraded by it, you know? Sometimes I think that, like, I'm going to be, you know, slowly worn down until I'm just wearing sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, let me add, where, where is it? Where are the Rocky steps? What's the, what is it? That's the Rocky Okay. So have you, have you ever, I mean, does everybody who lives in Philly at some point run up those steps and do the, yeah, I mean, like where I live, it's a, it's a, to there and back, it's a, like a 8.1 mile run. So I just did that, I guess a couple of Saturdays ago and, you know, you, you run over there and run up the steps and. I mean, I don't jump and put my hands up in the air, but you don't? There was, no, there's a whole book. You kind of do. I mean, maybe <laughs> like, I've taken, I took a photo and I put it on Facebook and got a lot of likes. You know? Yeah. But like, there's a whole book of people doing that, of like photo. Somebody sat in like the bushes and took photos of people at the top of the stairs, with their arms up, you know, the easy gratification of, 
you know, walking up the steps and putting your arms up and feeling victorious. Whereas like Rocky's actual run in Rocky two was, was charted based on, you know, where the scenes of where he was running when he runs up those steps and does that, you know, it's probably about all those kids at the end. And he had run 33 miles based <laughs> on where he'd gone, but he starts in South Philly, goes all the way up to the Northeast, which is like, you know, 15 miles away. And then comes back all the way back to the Italian market, which is two blocks from his home, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, no, I, I have a buddy who proposed to his wife at the top of those stairs and like, you know, he's sort of a, he's a, he is a funny guy. And, uh, but you know, he was doing some of it tongue in cheek, but they, they got engaged up there and then like, raised their arms and had like a photographer. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, they used to have the, they used to have a statue. There's a bronze statue of Rocky that used to be on the steps right there, like right in front of the art museum. And a lot of people didn't quite like that because the art museum is, you know, a lot of people are going up those steps to see this Rocky statue instead of going to the museum and seeing like Monet and, you know, all the world-class art in there. Yeah. Uh, so, but they moved it. The art museum is pretty great. That's cool. Yeah, I watched a really fascinating documentary about the Philadelphia art scene. What is it called? The Art of the Steel, and it's about that new Philly Art Museum and that big collection that used to be up in like Bryn Mawr or what was it? Yeah, yeah, I know exactly, but I can't say the name of it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, super, super fascinating documentary, and like that. uh, I wish I could remember the details. (sighs) Some some politician essentially pulled all the levers and got a hold of that art and. Against the wishes of the person who owned yeah, it originally. I can't remember. A friend of mine worked there for a while and then quit. Yeah. Um, well, but I haven't been in yet, but I had to. So, okay, so grew up in uh, South Jersey. Um, Central. West Central. Central. Yeah, it's very, very... North Jersey is like has the, the pull of New York City. South Jersey has the pull of Philadelphia. They have completely different accents. And I'm from essentially like Princeton area where, where people do not really have an accent. Okay, and, uh, and you know, kind of look down on those people in the south and the north a little bit. Okay, but, but okay, so um, what, what kind of landscape are we talking? Because my buddy, the one who proposed to his uh, fiance on the steps of, of the art museum in Philadelphia, he's from South Jersey, and it was like really beautiful, like bucolic neighborhoody place when I went and visited yeah. him there. And like, is that what you were raised in? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that Mercer County, the West Central part you know i was raised right between princeton and trenton so trenton is you know the capital of new jersey but it's not doing so well you know busted kind of city yeah and princeton is you know one of the more affluent towns um in the country so i was you know raised right between that um in a you know small town in suburban town like there's a little village there's a school there like a prep school that i went to um what school did you go to um, it's Lawrenceville School. Oh, yeah, it's where my buddy went. Do you know <laughs> hey, yeah. what's his name? His name's Bob Gillespie. I know someone who knows Bob Gillespie. Yeah, he's sure. like the funniest son of a bitch ever. Like he's... Who knows? I worked with a woman. That's crazy. I knew, I worked with a woman for many years who was friends with him, but I didn't really know him. Yeah, he's a, good, he's a great guy. Crazy. Great guy. Huh. One of my dear friends. But, How uh, do you know we stu- we studied abroad together in college, so oh. yeah, we uh, we were down in Australia. That's where I got to know him. We've been friends ever since. Wow. So, um, what did your parents do? Like living down in what, like what West Central Jersey? West Central, uh, very specific. Um, my let's see, my dad is a uh, was an accountant at a pharmaceutical company um, for many years, just the same job, and you know, drove like five minutes to work. Um, and my mom 
is or was a uh, abstract expressionist painter. So that's the, the mix I have there. I was going to say, yeah. an account, accountant and an abstract expressionist painter. Yeah, but I think that makes a good writer, you know. Sure. <laughs> you still have the intuition and the, the expression and, the, you know, the artistic sense, but then you have the anality of having to deal with your language, you know. Well, and also editorially, you know, but I, I, there's a component because, like, I was talking to a friend of mine recently who I didn't realize had been, like, super good at math and, you know, a lot of writers, I think that uh, the classic idea of the writer is the person who's, like, just an idiot at math but did great in the, uh, you know, in the languages and in English and whatever, and that's not always the case. Like, there, there's something sort of, uh, especially when it comes to structuring, I find that if you have, like, math brain or you have some sort of analytical like uh, type A organized mind or whatever, that can be useful when it comes to sitting down to put a story in order. Right. Yeah, I think I had that until I was about 15, which I think my, my dad had to work in Japan around that time. We were just talking about that over Mother's Day. And it struck me that it was like the same time, around when I was 15, when I started you know, to burn off some of that rationality and some of that uh, math-brainedness and started to identify myself as like a language and... Um, you know, as a, more of like a language person. Wait, so time. was your dad? Was your dad was working overseas, and you guys stayed back in Jersey? Yeah, he was only there for a few months. He okay. had to go to Japan for a bit, and there was a chance that we were going to move there. And I kind of wish now, of course, that you know, I spent my last couple of years of high school in Japan. But uh, at the time, he had gone there, and um, and during that time, you know, I was just like, I think I could quit the football team. You know, I was playing a lot of music, smoking a lot of weed. Experimenting yeah. with psychoactives, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, like moving into, moving it along. You know, that'll do it, though. Yeah. That'll do it. I mean, you know, I don't, like, I don't think it had anything to do with necessarily with my dad not being there. Because my dad's no. not—he's not that kind of force at all in my life. You know, he's not like a uh, disciplinarian or anything like that. He didn't care so, if you—he didn't care if you were interested in the arts. I mean, he supported you. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, he's been a, a tremendous support for my mom and for me. And my mom's, you know, a set of painter, but it's still. Uh, you know, still does it, and she's seventy-two, and, and still has a, a studio now outside of Philly, and drives down there, and you know, does her work pretty much every day. Um, and she, my mom, also went to Pratt. I guess when I was like ten, and she used to drive from where we live up to Brooklyn. Um, and so she got an MFA in painting. Wow. Uh, when I was like ten or eleven, yeah. So, so that, I'm sorry. Well, no, just like that must have been instructive to you. I mean, to have because I, you know, a lot. Some writers have that working artist in the family that they get to kind of, kind of model or at least learn from, um, you know, by osmosis or whatever. Uh, some writers don't. Like in my family, I'm I'm an oddball, so I didn't have anybody like to draw from. But you must have gotten something from your mom. Yeah, well, both my both of my parents are readers. I think is the main thing. I think they got together because of John Updike. You know, they they both like really liked Updike in the late '60s or you know middle late '60s. And that was like their, their key things. They're definitely both readers. They both read probably 50 books a year. My, my dad reads more various stuff where he reads more like thrillers and crime stuff. But he also will read, you know, highfalutin things or he'll read anything I give him. He also reads like, I guess he's reading, he reads a lot of books in Spanish now. But now he's retired. That's like what he does. So, Wait, he speaks, so he speaks fluent Spanish? No, he's just studied it. You know, I don't think he can speak. I mean, he tries to speak. He sounds like the biggest gringo in the world, but uh, but he can read it. Or he'll like sit there and, as an accountant, would go over every word and look it up. And like, I think he's reading Juno Diaz right now in Spanish. In the Spanish. Why do they always add the uh, definite article when they when they're talking about the? <laughs> it's in the French. It's in the Spanish. I've never understood that. 
I guess it's a direct translation because it's Spanish would be in el, in el español. Right. I guess I don't know, or in like, or maybe it's like the 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 word language is somehow implied, like in the Spanish language. Yeah, no sé. No sé. <laughs> <laughs> I speak Spanish pretty well, so like maybe maybe that's what my dad wants to do it, so we can you know if we ever have to talk you know in front of my mom, we can use our, our secret Spanish. Yeah. Or something. Well, but, uh, uh, the, the funny thing is, is that like I mean, I'm fu- like, I'm functional, but uh, like super. I, I think intermediate would be a good word for my Spanish. And um, but I know, like I look at like you know kids now that I have kids, and some of my daughter's friends, like they're they're learning Spanish, they're almost fluent. And it would be weird if your kid was fluent in a foreign language, or especially if your kids were fluent in a foreign language that you weren't fluent in. <laughs> and then they could talk to each other, and you wouldn't know what they were saying. <laughs> right. I just assume that they have ESP or something. You know, they, they, any siblings would have their uh, their own language, right? Well, I would feel that I think I would feel obligated. Like if if my daughter started to learn like Mandarin or something or whatever language, <laughs> I, I I would I think I would want to know too. So we could I could make sure she's not. You know, I don't know. I want to know. What, I want to know what she's saying. Simply <laughs> on the internet, you know, what she, what she's right. So okay, so um, your parents were big readers. You started to kind of break away from uh, any kind of like uh, rationality, <laughs> or, <laughs> or uh, you know what I mean? I, I mean. I mean, like a math-brained approach to life. Like you started to self-identify as an artist as an adolescent at that time when you start to pivot into. Uh, I don't know, like a more grown-up uh, idea of yourself. You start to experiment with drugs and you start to drink a little bit. Like, I feel like that's a natural that's a natural catalyst to the transition. That was certainly the case for me. Sure, yeah, and you know, playing music and that kind of thing, and you know, just trying to experiment. I think I've always been like a little more ambitious or like restless, you know, so I keep moving through things a little bit more than say some of my friends. Um, and but yeah, around that time, you know, I think I got a, just like a literary. Like I definitely didn't consider myself a writer at that time at all. Like I wrote terrible journal, um, you know, terrible journal entries and poems that were probably going to try to be song lyrics that were just pretty bad. Um, but I know. What did you play? You play guitar? Uh, yeah, guitar. You know, I just played with a couple friends across the street from me. It was like a, a, my really good friend growing up was a virtuoso musician on on violin and piano. And then he wound up switching to like jazz, bass, and drums when he got to college. You know, he was just like a crazy virtuoso. There's so much music in their house across the way. And his older brother had a Gibson Les Paul, like the Jimi Hendrix or the um, Jimmy Page kind of guitar that we used to try to play all the time. And you know, just there's so much music in that family that I kind of um, I took. You know, I was like adopted. Or I adopted it and vice versa a little bit. Yeah, I was the only child too, so. Oh, okay. Um, was... So I spent a lot of time over there. And did you, could you sing? Um, yeah, I mean, I made noises with my mouth in a rhythmic fashion. <laughs> but you know, I mean, like, but you, you were the singer of the band? <clears throat> no, we never really had a band, you know. I think we just, we just played a lot, you know. Um, and just, we made up some songs and, yeah, I guess I did sing. It's hard to remember, you know, all of that. There's more just like improvisational playing, right? Um, that area. I mean, in high school, I don't, I don't want to, don't want to go into it too much. But I guess he, the guy, like there was, was the Princeton area at that time had uh, Blues Traveler that band. Oh yeah. yes, they were around, and they and my friend played drums with them a little bit. Sometimes they they play in my friend's basement. Um, I remember that was kind of exciting. I was like 15 or 16. 
um, and John Popper came down and started like playing his harmonica in the basement. Yeah, they were down there. Like I remember the first day my friend went to Princeton High School. He came back and was like, "Oh, there's this guy, like this fat guy who like has all these harmonicas and he's incredible." And you know, he has this band and like he was talking about. It. I guess they would hang out and play music just outside and smoke cigarettes. And uh, my friend, being a really good drummer, <clears throat> wound up playing with him a little bit. Um, I mean, I remember, what happened? To, what happened to Blues Traveler? I haven't heard of I, him. I, I stopped. I mean, I stopped listening to him. You know, probably 1992. So <laughs> I knew that the bass player died. The bass player had been my one of my friend's lab partners. Oh shit! Um, but I don't. Yeah, I haven't really kept up with him. Yeah, it seems like. I mean, if John Popper, first of all, you know, he was really heavy and he's smoking cigarettes. Uh, that's not healthy. But then I'm thinking, if you're a, a harmonica player, like you need your wind. Like you know, smoking <laughs> cigarettes, smoking cigarettes, and then trying to play. I was seventeen, though, so he was fine at yeah. the time. But, I mean, I don't really remember. All that stuff, or I'm not sure how like formative all that that stuff was for me, but that was going on. And I think that area like wound up producing a lot of the like the post hippie bands of the of the era, like Fish and Spin Doctors and Blue Shuttler. And whenever I talk about this with some of my friends in Philly, they'll start giving me shit forever, you know, because why you're not supposed to talk at all about any you know knowledge of or former interest in those kind of bands. You know? Yeah, I see. I, 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 I feel like that's bullshit. I mean, I, I was just talking recently to somebody and, like, you know, confess that I'm still a deadhead. I love the Grateful Dead. Like, right. Well, that's socially acceptable in Los Angeles and California, right? I mean, in Philly, you get, get strung up. Whatever. I don't care. <laughs> I like what I, I like a lot of stuff, but I happen to like them. I just... I think I mean, they, that, they're unfairly maligned. Like, at Fish, it's a different story. I don't understand Fish, but that's just me. Like, I don't care if somebody likes them. Right. No, I, I was definitely listening to all this stuff, particularly then in the late '80s, and when, at a time when you know we had one of us could drive or two of us could drive, and we could go take off and drive to Buffalo from New Jersey and go to a show and you know stay up all night and do some you know thanks to whatever we were taking and then drive back, you know, and, and just had some incredible experiences driving out to Indiana. I think after college, I drove to or after high school ended, I drove cross country. Um, to see shows in Mountain View, California. Yeah, so they're definitely into it. But it was like you could do that, and you could have an experience where you could could have a like a meaningful experience with sixty thousand people right. all centered on one one point. Which I don't. I'm not sure that really exists in any way. You know? Well, yeah, maybe not at that level of intensity or chemical intensity. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so where did you go to college? Uh, I went to Oberlin. Okay, and what was that? How was that? Oh, that's fantastic. I, well, I went to Lawrenceville, as I said, which was a pretty conservative northeastern prep school where people used to, you know, used to go there. Back in the day, used to go there and then pretty much always go up to Princeton, the way people go from Exeter to Harvard or Andover to Yale. Um, so Lawrenceville is a pretty conservative place. And then going to Oberlin, part of what attracted me to it was that it's, you know, definitely progressive and intellectually stimulating and that sort of thing. Plus, there's a lot of the conservatory, music conservatories there, so... Um, I knew there was so much music there to be, to be played, and that was great. I really wound up um, focusing a lot of energy on music. Although I, I was a baseball player, and I, I pretty much was recruited to pitch there, and I pitched for two years for their college team, for their varsity team, but also played in bands on the weekends um, that would play at the, the co-ops and parties and stuff. Oh, wow. So you were that good of an athlete? You could play college baseball? At Oberlin College. Well, still. Um, which, yeah, I was a good pitcher. I was like an all-state um, prep pitcher. We won the state championship 
on this this year. I mean, that's, that's my one big regret. You know, when I look now at the age where like, I would be retired and I'm just like, Oh, like that's actually, you know, I'm like six, three, I'm like strong thigh, broad shoulder. Like I should have pitched. I should have given it everything I had, you know, because like I, I worked relatively well, but not tremendously. I didn't dedicate my life to trying to be a professional athlete, professional pitcher at the age. Um, when I was like 15, 16, 17. And I think do, you, do you think you could have done it if you would have? Yeah, I, th- I think I could have been a double A pitcher, you know, if I had dedicated everything to it, you know. Um, I think that's a possibility. Because, like, without lifting weights or anything, I was throwing in the 80s and big curveball and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I think that, I think now, too, with the internet, I think about that, there's so much, so much, you know, you could watch a video on how to throw certain pitcher, pitches. Um, you could you could buy weighted baseballs. That's something I always wanted to get was get a weighted baseball. Um, and you know, I had no idea how to order a weighted baseball right. to 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 practice with that. But now if I could have done it at any time. Right. And so I think that kind of thing I, I you know, some like minor regret. Although, I don't know. I mean, that's all pipe dream, too. Everybody wants to be a baseball player, you know. I, of all the sports, of all the sports, that like I'm, I was never that good of an athlete, but of all the sports you could play professionally, I feel like baseball's the one. Like, they get paid stupid money, and they don't get, it's not really, you know, it's not like football where you're wrecking your body. Uh, like, you just get to, and you can play for like 20 years. And it's out in the summer, you're on those beautiful fields throwing a baseball around. Like, what a great, what a great job. <laughs> Wearing those tight pants, you know, yeah. spitting tobacco. Yeah. I remember, I remember reading, read a book by Tom Seaver, and the opening, and, the, and it strikes me, it strikes me that it was exactly like a lot of the advice books about writing, where they say like, you know, don't be a writer, and his whole thing was like, don't be a pitcher. Whatever you do, go play any other position. You know, just don't be a pitcher. It's so much more difficult to study the hitters, and you have to ice yourself down. You're in such pain after you pitch. You know, like. Um, like the, the struggle of it of being a pitcher is definitely like the you know the artist position. Yeah, um, well, I feel like, I, feel, I feel like pitcher and catcher like those are the two most strenuous positions on the field. Yeah, right. and whenever somebody whenever somebody says to me like that they don't like baseball, like okay, well let's watch like an inning of baseball and I'll just talk, you know, about like what's going on during and just talk about how the pitcher is setting pitches up and like what's going to come and how they're moving and what they're trying to do. But most people don't watch the game or like. Your average non-baseball fan who writes the game off doesn't watch the game within the game, you know, uh, pitcher and catcher, and that's and, and that's exactly the same thing, right? Of like, you not the same thing, but the, that same sort of binary or whatever, not binary, but the same battery between writer and reader to agree, you know, trying to synchronize. Well, yeah, like where you're saying that like that some people who are trying to be writers aren't necessarily paying attention to the game. <laughs> That's a good. Yeah, I wasn't quite saying that, but I just meant like, I mean, that's that, that's that's one way you could think of it. But I just meant like that the connection between you know between pitcher and catcher and that kind of mind melt where you're working in tandem with someone. Right. I mean, of course, the difference is that you know that the catcher is there and you can have a little conference with them and talk in the dugout. <laughs> Whereas, like with a you know writer and reader, I guess you could do that with Goodreads and you know getting response. Yeah. Or in workshops when you get responses from people. Yeah. It would be nice, though, if you could somehow just, like, call a specific reader on Goodreads and just be like, can we talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> right. You gave me three stars. Um, <laughs> so why did you quit playing baseball at Oberlin? Um, 
Oh my god, my high school team would have destroyed our college team. High school team was very good. Um, there are players on the college team who hadn't played in high school. Oh. Um, there was one guy starting at third base. So it was frustrating to me to induce a ground ball in a crucial situation and never really be sure that it was gonna, <laughs> there was going to be an out, you know? So then I tried to strike everybody out, and that led to, you know, that just leads to frustrations. And, um, but also, like, at the time, I was getting way more into playing music and having bands. And, and we had, we'd go and, you know, you have two double headers Saturday and Sunday in, like, Indiana in March when it's snowing. You know what I mean? It's, like, not the time you want to go. It's, like, I didn't really want to be doing that. I wanted to prefer at the time to be reading, you know, the stuff for classes or just uh, being with friends or playing music. Were you a good student? Yeah, I think, and definitely. Like, I'm, I was definitely a someone who spent a lot of time in the library. I remember one thing about Oberlin, my, my first weekend being like, okay, Friday night, like, first weekend in college, like, all site, big party, right? Like, waiting around, like, looking around, sniffing around, asking a sophomore, like, what she was doing. She's like, oh, I think I'm going to go to the library until, like, about 11 and go to off-campus party. And you're like, oh, it's Friday. Like, you're going to go to the library and study? You know, and that, and that it tends to be what people really do. Like, people spend a lot of time doing their classwork. And, you know. Wow, man. That's the exact opposite of my college experience. And you went to Boulder, right? Yeah. yeah. So you, you had, like, a hiking belt and a bottle of water attached to you at all times. You know, you're always ready to go hiking. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it like people are outdoors. You're, like, skiing on the weekends. Like, people would leave... I mean, I remember, like, scheduling classes, so you only had classes on, like, you know, Mondays and Wednesdays, and then you just leave on Thursday and go up into the mountains, and you're there all weekend. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, we had Cleveland. You know, <laughs> Cleveland, Cleveland was, like, a half hour away. The, the Great Lakes Brewery was there. That was a good draw. Yeah. Um, but then that was it. Like, where else were you going to go? Like, Akron? You know? <laughs> well, I, I sort of envy you. I wish I would have been more academic when I was in college and, like, you know, buckled yeah. down a little bit more. But well, That's why Oberlin was there. I mean, Oberlin was placed on, like, a, a swamp 30 minutes from – or 10 minutes from Lake Erie or something, whatever it is, 20 minutes from Lake Erie, just so that it would be a place where you'd study learning and labor, you know? Right. That was – yeah. So, well, that's cool. So uh, what was your major? Like, you were doing music. Like, were you studying music formally? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, just the – there, I was English lit, you know. I mean, I just played music with people. And then, like, but were and, you were you nursing a literary ambition in college? Um, yeah, I, t- I, mean, I took one creative writing class, and I just completely hated it. You know, like the the and so did I want to be a writer? Yeah, like I took a. Did I want to write? Like I took a. I know I took uh, the freshman year, the you know, winter term. You can come up with a class for yourself. And I just, I wrote some stuff. I wrote 30 pages of single spaced, horrible stuff based off of like some psycho psychedelic experience, you know, just horrible overwritten mess. Um, but, and I took a creative writing class where that it, it really, you know, that the teacher should have tried to, should have introduced me to Donald Bartholomew, you know, and instead like wanted me to write about my divorce and my alcoholism you know, but I was 19. <laughs> so I, I, didn't I was going to say, I was going to say, you, wait, you were divorced in college? You know, he wanted, he wanted me to like write a Raymond Carver, like that kind of, I felt like there was like this minimalist yeah. vibe that the teacher kind of wanted to, you to move towards. And maybe that wasn't true at all, but I just felt like I didn't want to learn anything craft related, you know, and, and didn't buy any of it. You know, I felt, I don't know. I was just a punk basically. Um, who 
definitely shied away from creative writing classes at the time, which is kind of funny because then I, I eventually got into it. Um, but I don't know. I definitely had like a, a huge reaction against the one creative writing class I took, even though I think I did perfectly fine in it. But um, and I didn't write anything for like two years after, and just focused on music. But then once I got out of college, then I tried to play some music. I was in Austin, Texas. And working in a barbecue restaurant, like making five bucks an hour or whatever, trying to play music, and then, and then got getting frustrated there, and just being like having more stuff going on in my head, like having so many like churning ideas and and that needed expression in language, and so definitely, and also it was like I couldn't find like minded musicians there, and it was much easier just to find a notebook, and and you know drink a few beers somewhere, right? So, so um, what, yeah, why did you wind up down in Austin? Just the music scene? Um, I, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I kind of didn't quite remember. I think I had two friends who were down there. Um, one guy I played with a lot at Oberlin, and then he, um, his roommate, who was another friend of ours, was leaving um, to go somewhere, so I took his spot. There's just a, a space open, and it seemed like a good place to go. And I was down there for a year, but like when you're 22, 23, one year is forever, right? I mean, that's one year is like a hundred percent of your, of your post-college life. <laughs> the first year. So, um, it felt like probably equivalent of five years now. Okay. Uh, and so then when, like, when did you start to, when did you start to like officially break with like the musical pursuit? Cause it seems like, it seems like it was when you were in Austin, was music still primary for you or was it? I was, I was playing like, I was writing songs that in the, the chord structures, the chord progression started to diminish as the language and the, the, the verses, um, grew, so I started to have songs that I couldn't remember because they were too long with the lyrics, and it'd be like one chord, you know, like an open A chord with maybe a G, and like some um, instrumental stuff that I would do. It was highly rhythmic, um, but I just went up getting frustrated, and and um, yeah, I, I I definitely remember like I think the last I played an open mic and I detuned my guitars like just improvising and doing rhythmic stuff and just detuned everything all the way down until there was no. Uh, you know, it's just bouncing the the the, the empty open chords, um, and the bartender was like, "Enough, enough." <laughs> and I think I was like, I, I wasn't necessarily consciously um, like quitting playing music, but but I I think that definitely was like the end for there. And then I wound up um, going to Central America for four months by myself. Um, where with, where in Central America? I went from Austin to San Jose, Costa Rica, but, but pretty much the school bus over four months um, and I wrote they have a hundred page journal and um, and a bunch of stories so wait 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 wait. you went on a school bus from Austin to, San- well, to Costa Rica I just took school buses you know like I, I took a like I, once I got to Mexico once I was down there I just you can pretty much take well in Mexico you can take cheap buses that are nice but once you get to like Guatemala and Honduras and Nicaragua and all that, you can pretty much take those school buses that are like painted, you know, they have fancy music, people have roosters on them, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like a dollar and they take you to the next town or the next, you know, you can go on them for five hours, six hours and cover a lot of ground, particularly if you're traveling by yourself, you know, and that's like part of your experience is just like putting your knees up on the seat in front of you and, you know, watching things go by, talking to people on the bus. So... Um, you speak fluent for us, basically fluent Spanish at that point. At that point, my Spanish was pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it, it hadn't been that good. It had definitely been lapsed. I studied in Spain when I was a uh, for 
I guess when I was 16, studied in Spain for three or four months in Alicante. So my Spanish was pretty good then. And then, um, but I, it had lapsed a little bit, but then, you know, it came back traveling by myself. So. And so what was like, was that like a literary trip or was that just like a fuck it? I want to get out and go travel or did you? Yeah. Have- in retrospect, it was like a, uh, finding yourself trip. I didn't think of it that way. You know, at the time I was just frustrated. There's no way I was like, going to continue working on this, this, uh, at Ruby's barbecue in Austin <laughs> for, you know, I very quickly became the kitchen manager and was making like six twenty five. I think I started at four seventy five an hour. Um, which is somehow was enough to live, you know, <laughs> they fed you and stuff. It was a good place, a good experience, but like, there's no way I was going to do that for more than a year. And then, um, and then just took off for Central America. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I definitely didn't have any intention at the time of that I was trying to find myself or that I was trying to go down there to write. It was just looking for experiences and to travel and see what was down there. Okay. So and then how did you get to the Iowa Writers Workshop? Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> very quickly, come back from Central America, moved back to New Jersey. A friend has a place in Boston. I moved to Boston for a year and a half, hate it tremendously, working cafes, working at an antiquarian bookstore for eight months. Wait, 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 stop for a second. Why do you hate Boston so much? You're not, you're not the first person I've talked to who hates Boston. <laughs> Whatever destroys the world is being created, like Terminator 2 style, is being created right now at MIT. Like there's some inter- terribly bad vibe there. You know, like there's those witches hats. They're not witches hats. Like this, the the highway signs have the pilgrim hats, but they kind of look like witches hats. There's like it's just an evil vibe up there. People were. Uh, I, mean, I was only there for a year and a half. I was like in my mid twenties. I was not particularly happy. I was like didn't have a very good situation. But the woman who I was living with was a friend from college, um, and you know, I was probably drinking too much. So it's like just frustrated. My hair was all a mess. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you talk to people in bars and you know you have a fun conversation and then people would be like oh what's your last name you know and I'd be like O'Malley motherfucker <laughs> you know it's like it's like a couple of times I'd say Klein and then and they stop like pretty much like stop talking to you you know as why why because it's like you were in an Irish bar or something and it was a not an Irish name or maybe they just thought it was crazy which is, would have been fine I think I was a little bit off at the time I was just reading tons and writing a lot and um and after a while, I decided that I was going to go to Central America, go to Peru, because I lived in Austin and then I lived in Boston. So I was going to live on the alphabet of cities, like A, B, and then I was going to go to Cusco, Peru. So Austin, Boston, Cusco. And then from there, I was going to go to Durham, then to Eugene, then to Fez, then Gdansk, on and on, you know? Like, that was my grand plan. Like, I was, I was in a depressed state, much like, you know, Germany in the twenties and thirties. And I came up with some grand plan for word, world domination. <laughs> I call it like the alphabet of cities. Right. And, uh, and, and of course, like, so I moved back to my parents. So I was like temp and I wind up writing a book about temping in New Jersey to go live, you know, to gain money, to go on this trip, you know, to go down to Peru and teach, teach, um, English second language and then do this each year, keep moving around. Um, and so that's where I really became, where I really started working on a computer, really started revising, <clears throat> really started... Was where? When you were living back with your parents or in Cusco? It was actually towards the end of the time I was in Boston, but then when I moved back with my parents, it was like three or four months where I was temping and I started writing this book, which became 
eventually became a book called Instance of Egotourism in the Temporary World. Um, and that's when I really, you know, was, I think working on a computer and revising was when it really became, started considering myself a writer and also started turning down invitations, like go hang out with friends and that kind of thing. Cause I was working on stuff, you know, like that was, it was more exciting. Like something had come off on the top of my head, you know, like the, I felt like this scintillating swirly jelly you know, feeling in, the, in, in my brain, um, from working, from writing, you know, and yeah. that, that was like, when I felt like something had really happened and it's, I, it's uh, good. It's actually good living at home from a writerly perspective. You can focus, you know, like it's, I, I had some of the best working uh, experiences in my life when I was living at home. <laughs> How old were you? I was like in my you know early twenties and I just had this spell where I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. And, uh, you know, you just get up, you'd work your mom, my mom would like have dinner ready. It was, it was, I just, she, you know, she would help me with my laundry. Like I was taken care of, you know, it was like the best situation ever. Right. Um, and, and, but it was also, you know, there was also not much of a social life. So there were just like, like fewer distractions. I think I felt motivated to work because I wanted to prove to my parents that I was serious about what I wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? I felt like <laughs> if I wasn't working, if I wasn't working really hard, I would feel like an asshole being there, you know? No, that's really true. I never really thought about that. That I was like trying to justify myself to my parents. I really wasn't at all because my parents were so pretty much supportive and like, you know, if I just been sitting on the couch watching TV, they'd been like, "Oh, that's good, good job," you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, but I, mean, I was there for a little bit, and then wound up moving to. Uh, I wound up going to, starting to try to go to Peru, and then um, I I started repeating that trip I had done. I went to Austin again, and I was going to go by land all the way to Peru, which was just insane. I got as far as Guatemala City and more or less had like a nervous breakdown sort of thing, you know, just like had a real crisis and wound up flying back. And I like, I wanted to live a, an American life and, uh, you know, and well, wait, what, what happened in Guatemala? You just, it was like, just you're on, you're on a school bus with like a rooster in your lap and you're like, what the fuck right. am I doing? Was like, I'd gotten on there. I'd gone, I left like around early December. So by the time I got into Guatemala, it was like around Christmas, New Year's, you know, I missed Christmas and it was probably a bad idea. I should have waited until after Christmas. Um, you know, cause I was feeling probably, you know, pretty alone down there and second guessing. There was a, a woman who I'd been dating who I'd, um, you know, things obviously broke off as I went off on this kind of like crazy Werner Herzogian quest of one man, you know, down for, to Peru or whatever. Um, like in Fitzcarraldo, I guess. And, um, but, um, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm hesitant to call it like a, a nervous breakdown, but it was definitely a, a crisis where like my, my plan, the ambition, like the excitement, all the things I had talked about and like talked up, even though it was a little bit delusional, but like championed the delusion of it, felt that kind of crash down, um, in one night in Guatemala city and then decided to go back. I remember talking to my parents and they, my dad was saying, why don't you fly, just fly to Cusco, Cusco instead of flying back to Newark. Um, but I, I think I wanted to live a, an American life, not, not be down there. I remember seeing a half of a cow cut in half, or sorry, a cow cut in half in the back of a um, pickup truck in, I think, in San Cristobal de Casas around Christmas. And something about that, it was just like so brutal and real. And I kind of wanted like a Wawa or something. I wanted like an American life. Yeah. Something about that. So, okay. Um, so where'd you go? Um, after that, what did I do? I, I was, I recovered a little bit in the, uh, my parents' house 
wound up going to, to Princeton, New Jersey. I got a medical editing job that did, you know, allow me to live in Princeton in a shared house. And then I wound up uh, moving to Brooklyn in like 1999, 2000 and telecommuting this job that I had, a uh, medical editing job. Like I moved to Brooklyn to try to, to meet some writers. That was the idea. I guess that was like August 2000. And very soon met some writers. Um, and I started doing iShot.net at that time. You know, the internet was around. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you. We got to get to iShot. So you started doing it then. Yeah, it was like August 1999, I guess, is when I started it, while I was working in Plainsboro, New Jersey. And I was like looking at all these websites out there. You know, the web is everywhere, right? Um, at that time, it was really just kind of starting up. But there weren't that many, that many lit sites. For the ones I saw, I didn't think were doing anything particularly interesting or interesting to me. And, or they were like aping conventional sites, conventional print magazines. Um, and I wanted to do something a little bit different. And uh, so I started, I shut the time and then, you know, I didn't know any writers. I would like, I remember on like a Saturday, I'd like eat lunch in front of my computer, listen to Michael Silverblatt, like bookworm. <laughs> he was my like my company of talking to writers. Um, I'm sure people are listening to your show in the same way. You know, like they don't have any, any access to any writer friends and, um, you know, hearing people talk about the stuff. Or any friends, period. Right, yeah, that's true. No <laughs> um, you know, I, I had some good good buddies and all that, but they were, uh, who live in the area and still do, um, the hometown area, but they, uh, you know, they're, they're, they read a little bit, but they don't tend to read fiction. So I want to ask you, I want to ask you about iShot and about the editorial work you, you did. Uh, like receiving all these submissions and the energy that you put into responding to everything in the slush pile. Like, I mean, that's a, that's a big job. Yeah. I don't know. Um, how did that happen? Like, I think it was exciting to me at first, right. To get any, you start a website, right. And you have no idea what's going to happen. What you have no idea if you're going to keep doing it. And then you, you start to get submissions and I used to print them out and like read them twice, you know, at first when I'd get my first couple of submissions and then respond and really, and really in depth. And then I wound up stopping the printing up of this stuff, you know, and then, uh, and I don't know, I always wanted to be, I always wanted to treat a submitter this, the way I would be, um, you know, the way I wanted to be treated as a writer, sending my stuff out. Cause I was sending my stuff out a little bit and, um, getting stories rejected very rightfully, and then I had a, a story accepted at the Barcelona Review in, I guess, 97 or 98. And I had such a great experience with Jill Adams and her, um, her husband, I'm pretty sure. Um, and it was such just like a, it was like a little web hippie hallelujah thing, you know? The fact that they're in Barcelona and they're responding to your emails overnight, you know? I had been in Spain, as I said, you know, and... You know, a letter would take like two weeks to go back and forth, and now all of a sudden they're emailing back and forth, and they're printing my story and translating it into Spanish. That kind of thing was very inspiring to me, and then so that's part of the reason why I started the iShot. And then, but I also wanted to have those kind of experiences with other people, um, and also wanted to make connections with people, right? even if I was just rejecting what they were writing. Yeah. Um, but well, some, was, some of these rejection letters are like really, I mean, like you didn't, you didn't mince words. I mean, some of them are pretty like harsh, but I think, <laughs> I feel like you're giving people a fair shake as long as they're giving you a fair shake. Like how did you mod, you know, how did you modulate 
the tone of these letters? Like, were you thinking about that, or were you just operating on intuition and writing from the gut? Yeah, the latter, definitely. I mean, I don't really remember having written many of them, you know? I mean, particularly from back in the day, from, you know, what's now like 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Um, I think that a lot of times I was just entertaining myself and hoping that I entertained the other person. And that if I did entertain the other person, they would come back and they would be like, if they, if, as you, you know, if they took offense and went away, that's fine. That was kind of my sense, you know, like now this is hard to, to think about now, but like back in the day, people were just a name and an email address. And like, they didn't have like a profile and a human, full human person attached to them. You know, they were really just, you know, they, it was hard for me to conceptualize that they were actual human beings there with like feelings. Right. So if I sent some words to them, I didn't really feel like, I felt like it maybe it was all happening on the computer. It's hard to explain. Well, no, like you, had, you, had, so you had some sort of, yeah. I mean, it's dehumanized in a way. I mean, right. Right. But like, you know, now, now I think there's a sense that, you know, this is the internet's all an extension of our, of our humanity, you know, and everybody treats each other incredibly nice for the most part, you know, and if somebody doesn't treat someone else nice, it's like a shit storm for a second. Um, and, you know, back then I, I was just felt like it was absolutely in a vacuum. Um, but you know, but, but, things, you know, what's funny about the internet, cause I was, you know, I started the nervous breakdown, um, several years later, like you were ahead of me online with a magazine by a good amount. But, um, you know, even then there's not that many, I think what you find is that it's a relatively small community. You see a lot of the same faces and names, oh, yeah. uh, like, so were some of the people that you were submitting to, or that were submitting to you back in those days, like, uh, you know, several of them have gone on to have publishing success. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something that's been kind of funny to watch, right? I mean, like, I think I'm pretty sure that I published definitely, if, if not the first, then the first or second um, by Tao, Tao Lin and Blake Butler. Um, and, but also received, you know, so many submissions from people who've really gone to, to have more success, who I did not ex- accept. And that's been kind of funny to watch, too. For right. me, so uh, people you rejected who uh, then wound up working their way through it and finding uh, success yeah. later. Yeah. And that's been kind of fun too. Like it was ser- serially, like many times rejected certain people who say in like 2002 to 2006 submitted a bunch. Um, like who? I don't know. Should I name names? I can name some names. Um, well, I mean, I they've know. had success. So it's kind they're, of, they're kind on of, the, yeah, they're on the present, on the present, um, internet personalities. Some of them, you know? Um, and I think what's great is like they, you know, that, that, they they were always persistent trying to get on the site, but kept, um, you know, they kept going at it, and and they found their way definitely through their their own persistence and through like keeping working at it. But like let's say Matt Bell, Shane Jones, um, uh, Roxanne Gay a little bit, um, you know, just there are a number of people, but those those ones really stick out because they have you know have have a large presence for right? him. Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I mean it's like uh, it's kind of heartening too because, uh, like you said earlier about your own work, when you're sending stories out, and then at the time you're sort of bitter about it or heartbroken that the thing gets rejected, but then a little bit of time goes by and you have the benefit of hindsight and the clarity that comes with that, and you realize how right the, you know, how rightly rejected they were. So, I mean, do you ever do you have any like doubts about things that you rejected from back in the day where you were like, man, I, I wonder if I was wrong about that one, or when you rejected, did you feel like pretty confident that it deserved to be? 
Yeah, I'd say that I have 100% confidence in every rejection that I've ever made, you know what I mean? Because, like, it's so incredibly subjective at the time, right? I think there was one time where I kind of flipped a coin, and that's probably the only one that I, I'm not sure about, you know? I can't who, who did who, what, what? I don't remember at all. I don't remember at all. I just remember that there was one thing I, I, I probably should have just rejected it because I wasn't, you know, I, I definitely would accept things on, on intuition and, and through like hearing myself make noises. Like if I laughed or snorted during a thing, yeah, I would, I would, I was like, well, I made a, I made a noise. That's, yeah, I that's, accept that. Like no, people, yeah, that's, that, exactly. I think that's a, I think that's actually really smart. That's a really good litmus for whether or not a piece of writing is moving, is moving you, especially if it's a comedic piece of writing. Like if you, okay. la- if, if I laugh out loud while reading, like forget about it. Right, that's it. That's exactly. I mean, particularly like the internet now is different. Like the 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 first wave of literary sites was there was definitely more of a humor, humorous sense to things, you know. Like, and that's not the case. I I think, although I don't know the field as well as I did back then, but because of McSweeney's, which had a humorous vibe to it, and Pinsley Boz and Uber and Hey Penny was a was purely comedy. Um, Yankee Pot Roast, all those sites, and then Hobart came a little bit later, um, but came along. Um, so it was, it was kind of fun. Like it was definitely it's fun to see too. Like the, the the writers who were really around and watched them move on to other things, and then watch this other group, like another generation of online people, and kind of watch them start to recede a little bit. You know, like I don't I don't watch I don't watch it as much as I did maybe a couple of years ago. It's so um, hard. It's so hard. I mean, it's like it feels very flooded. And it's very time consuming to do. I mean, I, I know this from per- personal experience, but it's like, well, you know, it's got to be a labor of love primarily. And then uh, I, don't, I don't know. I feel like, like how do we suss this out? Like, there, there's just going to be a million of these sites. And I, sometimes I get confused about how things are going to proceed, you know, or, right. or, or like what, what's, what's going to become of all this? Like eventually are there going to be a few sites that emerge and become like institutions or is it supposed to be the way that it is where everything's got like it's little tiny Island in this little tiny channel, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, exactly. And there's like 17 people are all involved in it and something's big as hell. It seems big as hell, but it's actually only be 17 people you know, who are making a lot of noise about something. Right. But I mean, back, back when I started, I shot, it was like, it definitely felt new and there was definitely excitement to it. And there was definitely like, I could feel like, you know, I could put up like an IM instant message exchange be like, I don't think I've seen that yet, you know? Like, that has not happened yet on the internet, <laughs> as far as I know, you know? Um, so, I mean, there was excitement to that, where you're like, just happened to be there at the right time, right? And and there's not so much out there. And then, you know, then I wound up going to Iowa and, and stopped putting as much energy into it. And at that time, like, blogs really took off. Um, there was a thing called MySpace for a while. Oh, sure, yeah, that's familiar. Yeah. Um, there was a thing called Friendster for a bit. Yeah. Um, Facebook. I remember I was at Iowa once and somebody started talking about MySpace and I was like, what's that? Like, Seriously? You don't know what that is? So what yeah. was this? Like 2004, 2005-ish? Yeah, it was probably 2006 when somebody asked me, said something about MySpace. I was like, I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> I just felt like I can't feel like fell off the, the online table that quickly, you know? <laughs> wow. But, Good for you though, right? Yeah. But for a while it was fun because it was like, you know, before you had blogs, if somebody writes something and they want to get it online, they had to send it through me, sort of, or through an editor of one of these little literary magazines. Um, so you really had, like, more, you're more of a hub, you know, a node, to use the, that word. Um, and then that all became destabilized with blogs and 
now if somebody has a thought or writes something, they can just put it on Facebook or whatever. Yeah. But, but and I suppose that's good. You know, but it becomes um, a lot of a lot of noise, and there's no way. Like I don't, I really don't read almost anything online, and prefer to read, you know, books, <laughs> novels, that kind of thing, printed, printed matter. So. Okay, so you get you get through yeah. Iowa. Was, was Iowa a good experience? Um, yeah, I mean that was it's tremendous program. Um, you know, I'd been in New York and had met some writers there and was really seriously working. And then to be able to go to Iowa for two years is you know just an absolute gift. Um, and to have two years to spend there with the people who were there. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's, it's hard to explain. And it's definitely it's more than a good experience. It's like an um, incredibly lucky experience to be accepted, um, to get to go to it. You know, that's why, like, Lena Dunn in Girls, if you're familiar with the show Girls. Yeah. I haven't watched it, but I know uh, that she goes to Iowa. I've like, yeah, she, she went to Oberlin, and then she goes and lives in Greenpoint, which is where I live. And then goes to Iowa, so it's like, and her name's Lee, like Lena, and same same name. I'm just like, she's living my life, she's stealing my story. If she moves to Philly after Iowa, I'm just gonna sue, man. So wait, but, is she in Iowa on the show? I, at the end, she gets accepted, although she never had, she's never applied. As and it seems to me that she's never really written a story or or read anything. Wait, <laughs> you mean on the show? You mean on the show? Yeah, on the show. Yeah. But like on the show, her character goes to Iowa. That's the way the last season ended. Oh. Uh, spoiler alert to anybody who hasn't seen it. But okay, whatever. But yeah, yeah, okay. But you were you didn't. She was bu- she was behind you age wise. So you weren't at Oberlin with her or anything like that. Oh no, I'm much older. Yeah, I was just joking with that. But um, no, I mean, I was it was a good experience. Sure. I mean, did you, did I, you finish a book while you were there? Yeah, I finished the book that will come out um, in August with Atticus Books, um, the Shimmering Go Between, which I started in Brooklyn. And uh, worked on it. Iowa had Marilyn Robinson totally crapped on it. Like threw up her hands at one point and was like, you know, we're coming up against sensationalism again. The book, the excerpt that I workshop with Marilyn Robinson involved a, an autofillator, which is someone who fillets himself, and um, she wasn't pleased by that. Can people do yeah. that? Oh yeah, sure. They sure. can. I'm sure. I didn't know that it was. I mean, I guess there's some like contortionists that can do that, but there are dudes who can autofillate. Yeah, if you look on the internet, um, <laughs> you can find a picture or two or being interviewed. I mean, that's exactly what I'm going to do when we get done with this conversation. Yeah. So I just, I had, I've always I had, joked about that. Like, I feel like if if somebody could do that, like, would they ever leave the house? You know, like that's, that's quite. <laughs> yeah, a I had a, in the early on in my shot, I had a, a good interview with an autofillator that was up for a while. I took it down at one point because I was looking for a job. Um, <laughs> didn't want somebody to check out. What's this autofillator stuff? Yeah. Can you do? Um, but so that was a really. It's like the most popular since I took it down. Like that, my the stats for iShot went way down because it would be like twenty thousand a month. You know, like most of the traffic was like people searching like how to suck own cock. You know? <laughs> Seriously, like you look in the the, the websites. That's all it is. Yeah, no people. I mean, porny stuff. That's the that's the yeah. it's gold. It's internet gold. Yeah. Okay, sorry folks, this is Brad. Uh, we just had a little hiccup when I was talking to Lee. His internet connection went out. We were using Skype to record, so I had to call him back. We had to use his cell phone because his internet went down. It was a technical hiccup, but uh, we picked up right where we left off, or we tried to, talking about uh, auto fellatio <laughs> and his thoughts on that. So here's, uh, here's the two of us picking up where we left off for the most part. 
I saw it as at the time people were talking about um, navel gazing, you know, with Edgar's um, memoir and Bear Foster Wallace. That was a, a word that was going around a lot. And so the exaggeration of navel gazing would become autofellatio, you know, just moving it one step down if you're a, a guy to, get the, to the next level. Um, you would have autophilia. That that's the way I envisioned it, and I found that funny at the time. <laughs> you know, as an immature young man, like um, a, <laughs> just another form of self, just another form of self obsession. Sure, right. You know, but it's also like recycling. Like when you get, I think it's you know, when you get in your own head pretty deeply, right? I mean, that's one way of saying when you get in your own head. That's the saying that we have, right? <laughs> like I'm deep in my own head, but like not literally with your penis deep in your own head. You know? <laughs> so. But so it's just a, a literal and Mar- exaggeration. And, and, well, and Marilyn Robinson gave you shit for this. Well, she like she's I I know it verbatim. Like I have her beautifully handwritten letter, right, which I framed at one point and had in my room in Iowa, and like totally ate me up. And I would you know go jogging and just think about like the whole time. But it was like we're coming up against sensationalism again. The idea that prose that goes where no prose has gone before, like thereby justifies the, the effort or something like that. Um she also said that I was too good of a writer to be to be working at this level. You know, working at the level of auto fellatio and these kind of, you know, things. But I you know I thought I was writing about like a widower, like his this guy's wife dies and like he winds up sucking himself, and you know, it was like it was a sad story. Like it was funny. It's just, and sad. It's just like, funny. where I like to go. Consider well, and considering where the kind of stuff that Marilyn Robinson writes, it's just funny to imagine her like evaluating this. Not like no, not right. well, but it's just people's taste, you know. Yeah, whenever, whenever, like I would always say, like whenever a dick hits the air in a story that she workshops, she was like, no, no, this is this is sensationalist. And, you know, there's one guy who had a, a story that was like two two younger boys like experimenting a little bit, and like their penises hit the air, and she's like, nope, nope, you know, that's just crazy, you know, it's like not <laughs> realistic or anything. But like she hasn't, you know, she was a great uh, presence, you know, but like for me, not a positive presence. Like it was somebody to react against, yeah. you know. It was, it was like, and I still, you know, I was reading somebody who was posting something like an interview with her recently, and I'm reading it and just like, ah, you know, like I still, I'm, it's like it brings up this like, ah, feeling, you know, and I think that's a fine thing. I think it's good if you're going to have a teacher, when you need to have in a good graduate school, the teacher who comes in and knocks you upside the head in one way or the other, you know, right. she definitely knocked me upside the head. And, and, you know, and I, you know, like I was, my stuff was well liked at the program. I got like a nice fellowship. You know, there my second year, um, Frank Conroy liked my stuff. He had he had wound up dying my second year, but um, you know, Ethan Cannon was pretty into it. But Marilyn definitely, you know, um, you know, threw up her hands. Well, it's good. And, to, like, and then she won the and then she won the Pulitzer Prize like the next day, the next <laughs> week. Right. You know, just like rub it in, like oh, fuck you, kid. You know, Pulitzer Prize, eat it up. So. Uh, but it's good to have so somebody. It's good, it's good to have somebody to react against. I mean, it, but you know, I think that in the same breath, you should say that if you're reacting strongly against somebody of her stature, you know, who has, who, who knows a thing or two about this, um, then I think like you probably feel an, uh, a sense of obligation to know why you're reacting against it and to explain that to yourself in a in a manner that, um, 
you know, is substantive. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not just like, oh, fuck you, right. what do you know? It's like, oh, you know, I'm reacting against this and here's why. And then you have to kind of make your case. Oh, absolutely. And, but it took me like, with his book too, which I worked really hard on from probably like 2002, you know, the book, the Sermon Go Between started like watching the, you know, from the Williamsburg Bridge, like watching the, the Twin Towers fall, like soon after I had come out of like a, a you know, intense relationship and, you know, overcoming that period of sorrow and disbelief at events that were happening all around, you know, and like really working hard on it for a couple of years, going to the workshop, having like hopes for it. And then having that kind of backslap or, you know, smackdown, it took me a while to, to recover, you know, from it. So, so at least for this book, you know, it took me a while. I, I used to think like, oh, I, I can't believe I just wasted my time at the workshop working on that book, you know? And then, and every once in a while, I'd like open it up and work on it some more, you know, as I worked on other things. And then to, now to have it coming out and getting accepted and read it now, I'm like, this is, you know, all of the work and all of the enthusiasm I had for it is still there, you know, and it completely just like changed my perspective on it. I was definitely negative about it for a while. And, uh, you know, now having it come in the world and having other people liking it and reading it, um, it's completely, you know, changed that perspective. Did you ever, did you ever get into like, did you ever get into like a karmic frame of mind when you were getting smacked down in workshop or by Marilyn Robinson or whatever, thinking to yourself, like all those candid rejection emails I sent (laughs) coming back at me now. No, absolutely. I've, I've thought that entirely. You know, in in this book, there's, the, there's these little women, whatever, that, that one of the main characters who has an immaculate conception disorder, these little women grow on the beard, whatever um, she sleeps with, and they abandon all these little women in very, you know, elaborate ways, like, you know, on the beach or, like, put them on little rafts and send them down the river, put them on kites and stuff. And she thinks that they're going to come back and get her. And so she exiles herself for, like, you know, a bunch of years thinking that, you know, these little women are going to come attack her. And it's a little bit like that. You know, I always think karmically it's possible. I mean, as you, you were talking with Leslie Jameson uh, a few episodes again, ago about empathy and how, you know, and you mentioned the story of somebody um, pitching the yes men, right, and how they pitched that. And, of course, the people said yes to a guy who could only say yes. Right, you know? right. And uh, so I think this, you know, the rejection you know, maybe people, uh, maybe that comes back to you as well. You know, if, if you get to be known for um, rejecting, it's only fair. And you'll be it's rejected. Only, it's only right. fair that you get a little taste of it. You know, but right, uh, yeah. And I've had my I've had my share of rejection. You know, by a hundred, you know, several hundred times. So that's cool. Yeah, you know? well, as, <laughs> I've done my time. <laughs> as most writers do, though. I th- I do feel like you know because. Yeah. You were in the in the internet. You were you were in that like editorial chair online at a time when, like you said, blogs were not as prevalent. Social media hadn't arrived, so you really did have some authority, editorially speaking. But now I feel like with the internet, um, you know, the old rejection thing isn't what it used to be uh, because a lot of the traditional print publications either aren't around or don't have the same cachet, and people can just go online and publish their stuff. And if they want to make a book, they can start a small press and. You know, so maybe there's not as much rejection as there should be. Do you ever think that? Right. Well, I think the, the main thing is the rejection that is out there is form rejection through submittable or submission manager that one story started. You know, they have like tiers of rejection that they can send you, um, that kind of thing. Where people, I know when I respond to people now, I, people always write right back to me. 
you know, in a way, and they're thankful for what, for just responding to them or saying something, anything about the story. Like people, so many people out there just want some connection, have somebody sense that a human being read their story at this point, you know, um, where I think that was expected back in the day. But then now there's a sense that like some editorial assistant or intern like scans something for a certain form and then rejects you, you know, yeah. uh, uh, form fashion. So like personalized rejection, it takes more time, but I think you're still making that connection, which is something that I think you want to, you know, like why people get into it in a lot of ways to make a connection with another person through writing or through the peripheral things like talking well, to I, someone else. I think, I think that you're a, you're a master of the form. You're a master at rejecting people in writing. <laughs> I think I, I agree with you. I think I'm the foremost rejector, <laughs> rejectionator. Like, and the, the book that, that Thanks and Sorry and Good Luck, I think it's probably the finest collection of rejection letters that someone has written over the course of a dozen years. Well, we will... Uh... <laughs> Much of it exists, yeah. So. Yeah, no, it's cool but, and, and and instructive too. You know, there's a lot of good wisdom in there, and uh, I congratulate you. You know, on the on your side of the line as a writer for working your way through all that you've you know, all that you've had to work through to get to this point. Congrats on the two books, and uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. All right, thank you too. Okay, guys, that's Lee Klein. Go get thanks and sorry and good luck. It's available now from Barrel House, and uh, be sure to check out the Shimmering Go Between. That's due out in August 2014 from Atticus Books. You can find Lee online at ishot.net slash Lee Klein, and he's on Twitter where his handle is at ishotlk. Thanks to Kill Rockstars as usual for the good music. Check out killrockstars.com when you get a second. And uh, don't forget to go get the app and to sign up for Other People Premium. Support the program. Uh, what that means is you sign up. Well, first of all, you get the app. The app is free. Uh, you get the most recent 50 episodes for free. And then once uh, you've gone through those, you can sign up for Premium. Uh, and you can support the show. And you can get access to the entire archives. All 200 and almost 80 episodes. There might be actually 280 episodes at this point. Does that make sense? It's 2 bucks a month. That's all I'm asking. That's seventy or yeah, two bucks a month, or you can pay five, uh, six bucks, or five bucks for six months, or nine bucks for a year. There are different pricing plans depending on your budget. So I've tried to make this easy on you. Support the show. Download the free app. It's available wherever apps are available, and then sign up for premium right there within the app. Okay. All right. I think that's everything. I've covered a lot of ground today. Parenthood, mortality, life. What is this? Every once in a while, like uh, like maybe once a week, once every two weeks, I feel like I kind of wake up a little bit and I realize that I have no idea what the fuck is going on, or I'll have like a flash of real terror <laughs> uh, regarding mortality. And yet, on a day to day, average basis, I live my life like uh, I actually I actually know what I'm doing, like I know what's going on around here, which seems silly, but I think you have to do that. What uh, you know? What what's your other option? can't just walk around terrified or, you know, slack-jawed and awed in a state of uh, gaping confusion. I don't think you can. Please remember that Manet and Mallarmé spent time together nearly every afternoon for roughly 20 years and that Herman Hess died in his sleep at age 85. That's it for now. Thanks again to Lee Klein. Go check out his books. Thanks to you guys. I'll be back again soon with another one of these, whatever this is. What is this? Where are we? We're just clouds. It's the circle of life. Uh, everything is one, and the one 
is all alone. <laughs> 